well, good morning, Park. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I'll just mention it since I've told so many people already. I'll say it once. Um, you might notice the boot. I got a stress fracture in my foot, and I have absolutely no idea how. My foot just ended up being stiff about probably three weeks ago. Um, was limping by the weekend, had it, had it looked at, and I have a stress fracture. So that's what the boot's about. Um, doesn't hurt at all, so it's just for style now. Um, but I go on Tuesday for another x-ray, and we'll see what happens then. I'm hoping he says it's all fine and I can take it off. Um, so this morning we're going to continue walking through James. Uh, last week we looked at verses 1 through 11. Um, this week we're going to take a look at the next big chunk, verses 12 through 18. So if you want to open with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. This section of scripture is probably, it offers us one of the deepest insights into the heart of every person. James breaks down in a surprisingly practical and technical way exactly how sin and darkness can take root in your heart and in your life and how it's so attractive. It's incredibly important for us to understand exactly what he's getting at. Self-help books offer secrets on how to have a successful life, how to get over your problems. None of them even come close to what James offers in this passage. None of them come close to the insights into your heart as this passage. It gives insight into your conflicts with other people. It gives insight into the emptiness that we feel when we chase things of the world. It gives insight into the turmoil that we feel in our hearts on a daily basis. It also gives us insight into the amazing God we have and the gifts that he has waiting for those who hold fast to his promises. We're not meant to live with this inner war that we feel. We're not meant to live in constant tension between the sin that so easily entangles us and the peace that passes all understanding. A peace that most of the time just feels slightly out of our grasp. The passage we're looking at this morning is deeply troubling, but at the same time, it's deeply encouraging for us. And I think this passage deserves a lot of time for you to just meditate on and think through. So let's read it together. If you'll stand with me, I'm going to read James 1, starting in verse 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. 
And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this insight. Lord, this morning as we look at this passage, help us to think deeply about how sin works in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to use this passage to fight it. Help us to use this passage to look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So verse 12 has a couple things that we really need to understand. And if you were reading this all in one sitting, we do it spread out once a week. If you're doing this all in one sitting, verse 12 would immediately bring to mind verses 2, 3, and 4. That were just a few paragraphs before. So let's look at verse 12 again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It should automatically make you think of verses 2 through 4, which are so similar. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed are you when you may remain steadfast, because there's a reason that he gives. You don't just do this for the sake of doing it. There's a reward waiting for you if you make it through. A crown of life. And look at two through four again. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So do you see the connection between those two? Count it joy. Blessed are you when you encounter trials. Your attitude should be That trials and tests are a good thing. Count it joy. Blessed are you. Now we need to put a couple things together in order to get why. There are two huge ideas that stick out in this passage. One, the idea of tests, trials, and temptations. And the other one is steadfastness and endurance. So we're going to look at both of those. Tests and trials. Let's take those first. Tests, trials, and temptations. I'm going to use all those interchangeably because James, in a sense, does in this passage. And they're all getting at the same meaning. The idea here is simply something that is a, an obstacle that might challenge 
your faith or take you off track in some way. It could be temptation. It could be a life challenge. It could be an unexpected life event. Anything that may cause you to waver in your faith. That is a trial. That's a test. Now, there's one other element here, and our word test is uh, a perfect word because it carries the same meaning. The testing is meant to prove something. It's meant to produce something. And it's the same way we use the word test. You take a driver's test to prove that you're a capable driver. You take a math test to prove that you have competency with arithmetic or whatever the test is about. The purpose of the test is a approving or a uh, producing. Andrew last week said it perfectly. It's producing something in you that you cannot produce on your own. That's the idea of the test. So that's tests and trials. Steadfastness and endurance. Again, interchangeable. They're meaning the same, same thing. They could be translated the same. Now this really is kind of interesting to me. If you look at verse 3 and at verse 12, steadfastness is both what the test produces in you and it's what you need to pass the test. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. You can see how it almost would create a snowball effect. The more you pass the test, the more you get of what helps you pass the test. And presumably you can then pass harder tests. Which would then produce in you more steadfastness and endurance. It just maybe is uncomfortable that those tests are trials. Count it joy when you encounter tests of your faith. Steadfastness sounds like kind of a lame reward though, doesn't it? (laughs) That's not what I would pick. It's one of those moments in the Bible where you have to let the Bible inform what you think about the world and change how you perceive things. Steadfastness is not at the top of the list of characteristics or things that the world treasures. Look at what James says about it. Let steadfastness have its full effect. This is verse 4. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. That's what I want. I'll take that 
then you let steadfastness and patience reign in your life through trials and testing. (laughs) What a gift. And what an award for passing a test. So putting all those thoughts together, why should we count trials as joy and be blessed for going through them? Write this down. Here's the one idea for this entire morning. Tests and trials are an opportunity for you to prove your faith. The theme of proving and evidencing your faith is what saturates the book of James. And he jumps right into it here. Tests and trials are an opportunity for you to prove your faith. Blessed are you when trials come. Count it joy when things get hard. And you have the opportunity for your faith to work. For your faith to produce steadfastness in you. It's not a time to get depressed or shrink back or blame others. It's a time for you to prove once again who your king is and that your faith is real. What a helpful moment when trials come. What a boost to your faith. We don't always pass them. Often we fail. But I guarantee you will always have the opportunity. Life is just one series of trials after the other. For when you have stood the test, you will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Count it joy when you experience trials. James now shifts focus, and he gives us insight into temptations, which is another form of trial. And we get this amazing glimpse into the heart of humanity. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So let's stop here for a second. I think James maybe sensed where some people would go. So he cuts them off. Don't blame God for the tests, trials, and temptations in your life. James moves on to tell us where the temptations come from. And here's where we get the insight. Here's the root of sin. Here is the root of your relational conflicts. Here is the root of everything wrong in your life. And that's not an overstatement. Verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. 
Temptation does not come from outside of you. It's in here. There's a deception in you. There's a lure in you that causes a seduction. And it will draw you away from what you know is safe. We use this language with fishing, exactly. We put a lure on the end of the line. I know fly fishing more. That's what I really got into. There's an entire hobby and subculture involved in tying flies. Getting the fly to imitate exactly a real one. To lure the fish out and bite it. The point of the lure is to seduce the fish and draw it out of the safety that it's existed in its entire life up until that moment. Inside you, always working, always boiling, is a lure made of your own desires. They are constantly trying to pull you away from what you know is right and good and safe and holy. That is the image James gives us. Temptations do not come from outside of you. We are experts at luring ourselves away into danger. It will be a war that you fight your entire life. Constant vigilance and constant defense. James gives us an even more detailed image. He breaks it down a little bit more by bringing in the analogy of birth and conception. Verse 15. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So when you give in to that lure that has been created by your own desires, and you go for it, you take the bait, there's a conception that happens. And it's interesting that it goes straight from conception to birth. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Almost as if conception and birth are immediate. And when that sin grows, it brings forth death. There's a number of things that we can learn about our sin here. And we're just going to talk about a few. Here's one. It must be cut off at the lure. Here's, here's how you fight the moment that the battle is won is at the lure. Don't go for the bait. It seems that once you bite the lure, it starts a domino effect that leads to death. The point to attack and remain steadfast 
is to not go for the lure that's created by your own desires. Another thing, and this one we talked about already a little bit, temptations come from inside of you, not outside of you. Don't blame others for your sin. It's all in here. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. It's such a difficult tension. And it is constantly tearing us apart and at war within us. Paul has a vivid way of trying to explain this battle in himself. Romans seven fifteen through 24. You can turn there if you want, but I'll read it. Listen to how Paul explains what this feels like in him. You can just tell that he is confused and struggling. Romans 7, starting verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You can just feel the tension. He's sick of it. A constant war. Back and forth. Another thought. Do not nurture your sin and temptation. It leads to death. Do not think that small, hidden sins in your life are okay and not hurting anyone. They lead to death. They're killing you. It's scary to think how many dead people may be walking around in the world. People who do nothing but conceive of and give birth to the sin in their lives and simply give in to their desires that lead them away from God. If you continue to give in and go for the lure, steadfastness and endurance is not built in your life. It atrophies. Every time you fail the test, you 
you lose a little bit of endurance. Now here's some good news. <laughs> and one, this isn't in the passage, but it's kind of something that needs to be talked about along with this passage. Not all desires are bad. We have many good desires that we ought to lose ourselves in and pursue with abandon. Not all desires are bad. How do we know the difference? I would put to you that saturating yourself in God's word and the study of his character and how he acts in scripture is how you tell the difference. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. When you delight in something, typically you devote yourself to it, to understanding it, to treasuring it. Delighting myself in my wife, Jen, means I spend time with her, I learn more about her, the way she thinks, what she enjoys, what she likes. Delighting in her means I joyfully learn and memorize who she is and how she acts. I learn as much about her as I can so that I can serve her and love her better. That's what it is to delight. You pour yourself into it. And it is no different with God. To delight yourself in God is to learn as much about him and spend as much time with him as you possibly can. And the best way to delight in God is to dive into his word. On every page, you can glean amazing insights into who he is, how he acts, what his character is, what he's doing. What does he treasure? What does he cherish? What does he hate? What grieves him? This is how you develop a relationship. He already knows everything about you. But you have quite a ways to go to learn everything about him. That's how you delight yourself in him. So, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's two ways to read this. Delight yourself in God, and he will give you what you want. There are times when that happens. But here's another way to read it. Delight yourself in God, and he will put desires in your heart. He will give you desires. He will implant desires in you that were not there before. And those desires are to be pursued without restraint. The time we see this most clearly is if we were not a believer and then we became a believer. At that moment, all of a sudden, you want to do what you didn't want to do before. 
You want to love people. You want to show grace. You want to forgive. You want to read your Bible. Before, you didn't care about those things. God implants those desires in your heart. And that change is a big thing. Don't overlook that. James continues on, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James moves on with something that should bring us directly back to verse 13. The idea that we're deceiving ourselves if we think we're being tempted by God. It does not come from God. Temptations are in you. So what does come from God? The way he said this is is kind of interesting because he could have just said, God gives good gifts. And that would have told us something about God. But the way he says it, he he says it in a way that tells us something about good gifts. Good gifts, good things come from God. It's a very small difference, but it changes the tone of it. It changes the meaning slightly. He tells us that it's good things that come from God. And again, this should bring you directly back to verse 13. Evil things do not flow to you from God. Good things do. Good things come from God. He reinforces it by saying that God never changes. Good things come from God and it will always be this way. It's never going to change. Building up a foundation in you not to blame God for the temptations and trials in your life. And then James gives us the ultimate example of God's good gift. By his own will, he has brought us back to life through Jesus Christ. The greatest gift of all. That we may be the first fruits have the first taste of all of creation of what it means to be truly alive and not dead in our sins. James is going to spend a lot of time on this idea in the weeks ahead. Evidencing your faith through the killing of sin in your life through serving others. And you need to keep this analogy, this pattern that he gave us in your mind. Keep this idea in your head as we go through the whole book. This analogy of how sin takes hold. It enters your life 
through the enticing and alluring of your own fleshly desires. When you bite that lure, sin is conceived and born. And when that sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Run from it. Fight it. Flee from it. Or you might be a dead person walking and not even realize it. Sin is not something to play with. It is something to run from with all your might. Getting this insight gives us a tremendous view into our Savior. This is Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. There's the endurance, steadfastness. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He had the same lures. He had the same testings. But he never took the bait. He had absolute perfect steadfastness. Perfect endurance. And because of that, he has made a way for you. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look to him always in your fight against sin in your life. He is the ultimate example of not going for the lure, remaining steadfast. He was the one who did get that snowball effect. The passing of the test produced steadfastness. And his steadfastness helped him pass the test. Here at Park, we have communion every week as a way of reminding us of this amazing gift that we have through Christ. The ultimate example of what it looks like to remain steadfast under your tests and trials. Because he has done this, he's made a way for us to be able to follow him and do it. As the worship team plays the last song here, there's uh, communion cups in your pews. Take those as you feel led. And keep the example of Christ in your mind. The ultimate steadfast one. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the steadfastness of Christ and what he did for us. And we thank you for this insight into how sin works in our life. Lord, help us to clearly see 
how we make our own lures, how, how we spin our own flies to deceive ourselves into wandering away from what we know is holy and safe and good. Lord, help us keep our eyes on Christ and not veer to the lures on either side. Empower us for this. In Jesus' name, amen.